Our Bible reading this morning is from Genesis 2, verse 18 to 25. Genesis 2, verse 18 to 25. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him my helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of God. Father, we thank you so much that you are indeed a holy God, that you are clothed in majesty and holiness. We thank you that you are the great creator God, that you are the Lord of heaven and earth, that you are the king of time and space that you know the beginning from the end. We thank you, Father, that we can place our lives on you and your word. We thank you that though everything changes around us, that you do not change. And so we do pray, Lord, that we may firmly place our feet on God and his word, and that we may find you to be a rock and a foundation for all of life. And especially this morning, Lord, as we talk about relationships, as we talk about marriage, we do pray for your help that we may understand your word, and more than that, that we may obey it. And we pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, we're taking a short break from uh, Mark's Gospel. We started in Mark's Gospel early in January. And uh, we're having a short three-week break where we're going to be looking at the topic of marriage. And we're especially going to be looking here at the first three chapters of Genesis, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, really looking at the first principles of marriage. Now, we not only need a break from Mark, but uh, because of COVID, which has affected every area of life, and it's affected all of us, one of the areas that it has affected is our marriages for those of us who are married. And so we thought it would be good for us to spend two, three weeks looking at the first principles that God gives us in marriage. And um, it's important for all of us, for those of us who who are married, uh, it's always good for us to be reminded of the first principles. For those of us who are not married, we have friends, we have family who sometimes are looking for help and advice, and we may be able to help them. And if you are not married, you may well one day be married. You may not know that one of my aunts, Aunt Lali, uh, Aunt Lali uh, got married for the first time when she was 69. And uh, he was 80. Uh, So there we go. You never know. 
Let me say up front that there are many, many books on marriage. I'll be mentioning a couple as we go through the next two, three weeks. Let me mention two of the books uh, this morning. The one is by Christopher Ash. Christopher Ash is a wonderful author, and uh, he wrote a book called Marriage. That's the title. The subtitle is Sex in the Service of God. And he said to me he had that subtitle because they wanted to sell the book. Um, it's a great subtitle. Another great book is by Tim and Kathy Keller. Uh, you all know Tim Keller and his wife. They wrote a book called The Meaning of Marriage. And then later this year, God willing, uh, I hope that we'll run the course that we've been running here for a number of years here at Christchurch Midrand called Lord of the Rings. It's a very clever title. And uh, it's a brilliant course. And there's some excellent stuff in that course. I'm not quite sure who wrote it. Perhaps Kathy had a hand. Uh, but it really is an excellent course, and it has excellent material uh, on marriage. So look out for that later this year, Lord of the Rings. Let me start off by sharing three scenes, three scenarios. They are not uncommon, and uh, hopefully in one way or the other we'll be touching on them over the next three weeks. Scene number one. Fear lives at the Joneses' home. It's not evident 24-7, but fear awakens every evening at 6.30 p.m. when Daddy gets home. That's when eight-year-old Jenna knows it's time to be on high alert, and the five-year-old twins know it too. There will be something wrong. There always is. Brad Jones gets off work at 4 p.m., And he stops to unwind before coming home. He smells like beer as he opens the door with an angry shout. Martha, the toy's blocking the door. Get the kids down here to pick them up now. This place is a pit as usual. Do you do anything during the day? Scene number two. John would never tell anyone but he feels muted in his marriage. He loves his wife, Normsa, but he feels as if there are three people in his marriage, him, Normsa, and her mother. Normsa seems to be more concerned about the opinion of her mother, mother than his opinion. For example, he's informed every year as to what they do as a family every Easter and Christmas. He's still very hurt that it was Normsa and her mother who actually decided they would have no more children. Scene number three. I was a young counselor and didn't know that patterns of oppression occur in a quarter of all marriages. Clint told me with his wife Anne silent in her chair that she desperately needed help. He said, she's cold, she's unfeeling, she doesn't communicate, and I would appreciate some respect, he said. For a few weeks, counseling looked the same. Clint shared his issues and wounds, and I listened sympathetically. It was only when at one point I questioned him, which he didn't like, that I saw his anger. His anger towards me was intense, and he lectured me for 20 minutes. He wouldn't let me speak, and he wouldn't back down. When I met with her separately, it became abundantly clear that he was totally dominating and controlling in their relationship. He is what the Bible calls an oppressor. 
Clint had oppressed Anne for 25 years. His behavior did unspeakable things to her heart, mind, and body. Ecclesiastes describes the plight of the oppressed this way, chapter 4, verse 1. Again I looked and saw all the oppression taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressor, and they have no comforter. End of quote. I must tell you, I never thought of that verse in terms of marriage. Now, those are real people, real stories. The names have been changed. But if you've been around, listen to some of your friends, your colleagues, your family, uh, you will know that these things are not uncommon. Uh, Sometimes it's the wife, sometimes it's the husband, sometimes it's ad hoc, sometimes it's permanent. But these and many others plague plenty of marriages. Now, obviously, I'm not going to unpack each one of those scenes. Uh, Hopefully, we'll touch on them over the next two, three weeks. But what I want to do this morning as we start this short series is to look at first principles. And the first principles are given to us in the first three chapters of Genesis. So we're going to be spending our time here in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. But let's remember that those scenes is the backdrop. That, that's the context. That's the, that's the kind of marriage that many people are living in. And it may be some of you to, today. All right, four principles we're going to have a look at, and I'll be using the whiteboard. Many, many things change, but some things don't change. All right, first four principles, and we'll glean them here from chapters 1 to 3. So please have your Bibles open in front of you, either your Bible or an iPad or your cell phone. Principle number one is that God made us male and female. So let's start in Genesis 1 and verse 1. And we're actually not going to start with marriage. We're actually going to start with God. And I want you to notice it is God who is the subject, who is the object, who is the dominant party in this chapter, in creation, in the world, in the universe. It's not us. It's not our marriages. It is God. So let me show you. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God. God created the heavens and the earth. Chapter 1, verse 3, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. Verse 6, and God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. Verse 9, and God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. Verse 11, and God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding fruit and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its own kind on earth. Verse 14, and God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and, and, and for days and for years. Verse 20, and God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly over the earth across the expanse of the heavens. Verse 24, and God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. And then our key verse, verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness 
And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So you'll notice verse 26 and 27 is almost the pinnacle, the apex, the climax of God's creative activity. It's the piece de resistance. God creates human beings, male and female. Notice there, he speaks there for the first time. He doesn't just just say, and God said. He said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So that refers to the fact that there is more than one person in the Godhead. Let us make man in our image. And of course, as we know, later on in the Bible, that is fleshed out as we are taught about the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But here we almost have a divine uh, meeting and discussion. Let us make man in our image. Notice that he makes it quite clear, verse 27, that they are made male and female. Now, this is for another day, but do notice that the truth and the reality is that sex is binary and innate and immutable. Immutable means it doesn't change, it doesn't alter. We are created, we are conceived, male or female. So no so-called sex change operation or gender-confirming procedure can change that. We are made male or female. You can, of course, mutilate your body, or you can mutilate your genitalia, but you can't change the fact that every single cell in your body, and there are billions, is either XX female or XY male. There are rare exceptions. We do understand that. But the Bible is quite clear. God has made us male or female. So the phrase that I'm a boy trapped in a girl's body actually, my dear friends, goes against the science. You are XX or XY in every single of the billion cells that you have. Now, this is for another day, but this principle that there are two genders, that God has made two genders, male and female, is going to be a hill that we have to die on. It's going to become a massive, massive issue. And we'll have to decide as Christians, I've decided for myself, this is a hill we have to die on. And I'm not just saying that to be judgmental or to pontificate, but I passionately care about children and young people and that they don't go down this hugely, hugely destructive route. It will be unbelievably damaging. So, first principle. Let's not go down that route today. That's for another day. First principle, God made us male and female in his image, both male and female. We'll get back to this over the next week or two. Both male and female are made in God's image. Male and female, he created them. Second principle, Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. You'll notice that God is the author of sex. God is the author of marriage. 
Verse 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So surprise, surprise, the author of sex is not Elvis Presley or Taylor Swift, but God. Here we have it stated in the first page of the Bible. In fact, here in Genesis chapter 2, God arranges the first wedding, the first marriage. Perhaps what we have, what we have here is the original wedding planner, who is God himself. It is interesting that in the Gospels, Jesus quotes Genesis 1.27 verbatim and chapter 2 verse 24 verbatim. He quotes from Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. You can check it up in Matthew 19 and Mark chapter 10. God is the author of marriage. Now, Now, an important question, a key question is why did God arrange marriage? Why did God make marriage, create marriage? Now, we could answer chapter 1, verse 27, to procreate, to have children, to fruitful and multiply, and we've done that quite well. Or we could say chapter 2, verse 18, for companionship, it is not good for man to be alone. And of course, those are critical, critical verses, and we'll come back to them. But it seems to me as if Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 has a deeper reason for marriage, Have a look at chapter 126 and 28. It speaks about a responsibility that God has given to a married couple. Notice there chapter 1 verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. Verse 28, and God blessed them, that's male and female, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion. Notice chapter 2, verse 15. It's the same idea. Chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And then notice chapter 2, verse 18. God creates a companion, a helper for man to work and keep the garden. Then the Lord God said, It's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So it means that it's not good that man should be alone in having dominion. It's not good that man should be alone in subduing it. It's not good that man should be alone in working and keeping the garden. So here's the punchline. And it's critical that we get it, because if you get it wrong here, you're going to get most things wrong in your marriage. The purpose of marriage is not your marriage. The purpose of marriage is not to have a happy marriage. The purpose of marriage is not your or our fulfillment. No, the purpose of marriage is God and serving God together. It's quite obvious, isn't it, if if you have a look at those verses again. Chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man, man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. God has created them. God has created them, husband and wife, in order that they may serve God and have dominion. Same thing, verse 28. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. 
The purpose of marriage is not marriage. The purpose of marriage is not me or you. The purpose of marriage is not my happiness or our happiness. The purpose of marriage is to serve God and to serve God in his world. In other words, have a look at chapter 2, the end of verse 22. God brought her to the man. God brought Eve to Adam. The purpose, verse 24, is that the two would become one flesh, one person, and together as one flesh, they would build and grow God's world, God's kingdom. Now, I don't need to tell you that that is totally countercultural. You watch any romantic movie, love movie, any rom-com, any love song, the basic premise is that the purpose of love is to make us happy. The purpose of marriage is us. The purpose of marriage is marriage. And yet the text is telling us something completely different. Remember that great classic by Rick Warren. He wrote The Purpose Driven Life. In the first paragraph of chapter 1 he says, I quote, It's not about you. The purpose of your life is far greater than your own personal fulfillment, your peace of mind, or even your happiness. It's far greater than your family, your career, or even your wildest dreams and ambitions. If you want to know why you were placed on this planet, you must begin with God. You were born by his purpose and for his purpose. And then later on he says, I quote again, I once got lost in the mountains. When I stopped to ask for directions to the campsite, I was told... You can't get there from here. You must start from the other from the other side of the mountain. In the same way, you cannot you cannot arrive at life's purpose by starting with a focus on yourself. You must begin with God, your creator. You exist only because God wills that you exist. You were made by God and for God, and until you understand that, life will never make sense. It's not about you. Now, if we take Rick Warren's principle, actually God's principle, and we apply it to marriage in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the purpose of marriage is not me. The purpose of marriage is not us. The purpose of marriage is not our marriage. The purpose of marriage is God. Serving God together. Serving God's people together. Serving God's world together. If you want a... A fulfilling marriage, you need to have a purpose outside of yourselves under God. So if we were to summarize Genesis 1 and 2, biblical marriage is actually made up of three key relationships, biblical marriage. Number one, a husband and wife with each other. Number two, a husband and wife under God. Number three, a husband and wife with each other under God in the world. Let me try and draw that here on the whiteboard. Three key relationships. There's a husband, there's a wife, and they shall be one flesh. That's the first key relationship. The second key relationship is they are both Husband and wife with each other under God. Third key relationship. Husband and wife together under God in the world. 
They have a cause. They have a reason outside of themselves. Three key relationships. Husband and wife, number one. Husband and wife under God. Husband and wife in the world. Now, let me show you. If you remove either God or the world... That your, mother, that your marriage will either be incomplete at best or wrong at worst. So let me quickly show you. Let's imagine, we'll come back to that one. Let's imagine you only have a husband and wife. That's all you have. And that's what the movies tell us, remember? That's what the songs tell us. The problem is that more often than not, it will end in disappointment, disillusionment. Because no, rela- no relationship, no marriage can bear the weight of being God for one another. Remember that quote from Becky Pippet. She's written a couple of wonderful, wonderful books. Becky Pippet. And uh, let me read it to you. It's quite long, but it's so, so helpful in this particular case where you think that you will find true happiness, true fulfillment in another person. She writes and says, Human love can be real, deep, and lasting, but only if it is not asked to be what it isn't. My agnostic friend was suffering through the trauma of having been jilted by her lover. She thought she had found the love of all loves, but it failed. She told me it didn't fail because I took my relationship with him too lightly. Rather, I asked too much of it. I thought that once I found the right person to love, everything else would fall into place. And for a while it did. I thought love had finally conquered my lifelong problems with anger and distrust. Eventually, however, my dark side reared its head again. I hadn't changed as much as I had hoped. When my old problems emerged, he began to back away. So I started clinging more, demanding more. All my fears and anxieties that he wouldn't love me, that he'd reject me for someone else, kept edging into the relationship. I banked all my need for love in him and told him so. He said he couldn't bear the weight of it. I longed for him to solve all my problems, meet all my needs. I wanted him to give ultimate meaning and purpose to my life so I wouldn't be left alone. He told me that no one could sustain the pressure of being a God for someone else. I felt like I've been made to run on the fuel of love, but the minute I get in a relationship, I start to make him my center, my God, and the relationship crumbles. So I'm alone again. Wondering why my intense wish to be loved can't be gratified. Why do we carry such a hunger when it can never be met? It all feels like a sick joke. Of course, the problem is thinking that any human relationship will meet all the longings and needs of your soul. It's not possible. No human being can do that. It is also flawed. When it's just a husband, wife, and God. It's too selfish. It's too self-centered. It's also flawed. When it's only you, your wife, and the world. Because then you're going to be driven by the expectations of the world. Of your family. 
of tradition, of your culture. No. Genesis 1 and 2 tell us that all three relationships are critical for a healthy relationship. Husband and wife, one flesh, under God, not living for themselves, but for others, their children, their extended family, the church family, your neighbor, those in need. It's a purpose greater than yourself and your marriage. Principle number three. Turn to Genesis chapter three, the fall. The fall messed up marriage. So we need to understand it. The fall messed up every aspect of life, including marriage. So Genesis 3 describes the most terrible day, the most destructive day in all of history. The day that is called the fall. When the first married couple turned their backs on God, on his loving rule, turned their backs on the responsibility they had to manage the world. And the result was rebellion and it was catastrophic. Let me show you three ways in which the fall was catastrophic. Chapter 3, verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So they've rejected God, they've rejected his word, they've disobeyed God, they've taken from the fruit of the tree... God comes into their presence and they hide from him. Notice, it's not God hiding from them. It's them hiding from God. And their relationship with God is broken individually and corporately. They've thrown God overboard. The foundation of the marriage, the creator of marriage, the writer of the manual has been ejected from the room. No wonder we have problems in marriage. Again, have a look at chapter 3, verse 9. Chapter 3, verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you, sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Their nakedness symbolized their sin, their exposure, their guilt, their shame. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. They hid themselves from God. Their relationship with God is broken. Secondly, notice verse 11. Not only is their relationship with God broken, but their relationship with each other is broken. Pick that up, verse 11. He said, who told you that you were naked? God speaking to Adam. Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. So instead of unity and harmony, there's disunity, there's blame, there's accusation. You see, here's the, here's the root cause of broken relationships. God says, who told you? Who said you could eat of this tree? And Adam says, who, me? No, the woman you gave me. And here we have the root cause of broken relationships, the root cause of broken relationships and marriages. They come from sin, they come from the fall, they come from Genesis 3. Sadly, there's more to it. 
Not only is there uh, disunity and brokenness, but there's a desire to control each other. Have a look at verse 16. God is speaking here of his curse, of his judgment. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. So notice the effects of the fall on the woman. In fact, in the two primary areas of her life, in her children and her marriage. There's pain in childbirth, there's pain in childbearing. We're at our most vulnerable when it comes to our children, aren't we? And there's pain in her marriage, not just children, but marriage. The word desire there, your desire shall be for your husband, isn't a positive word, a sexual desire or some emotional desire. No, it's a negative word. It's a desire to control. It's a desire to manipulate. And we pick that up from chapter 4, verse 6 and 7, where God says to Cain, He says there to Cain, and if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. Its desire to rule you, to control you. So here we have the negative desire of a wife to control her husband, to manipulate her husband. The couple were in their 70s. I've known them for years. Let's call them John and Mary. They were happily married for 40 years. They still are, by the way. As often is the case, opposites attract and opposites frustrate. I think it was last year when I was with them and Mary sort of expressed uh, jokingly her frustration with, with John. And I said, but Mary, that's who he is. You married him like that. And Mary replied in a flash. She said, you're absolutely right, but I thought I could change him. Well, they're still very happily married 40 years later. But that is it. Because of the fall, the wife's desire is to control and manipulate her husband. But even more tragically, notice verse 16b. His desire is to rule over her. So instead of holding her lovingly to his, to his heart, he now tramples her under his feet. My dear friends, here we have the source, the origin of the battle of the sexes. Here we have the origin, the source of gender-based violence. So the relationship with God is broken, the relationship with one another is broken, and the relationship with our world is broken. And you can read that for yourself in verse 17 to 19. Paul Tripp, who's a great author, any book you get by Paul Tripp you must read, Uh, He wrote a book called Lost in the Middle, uh, Midlife and the Grace of God. So about three, four years ago, I, uh, on holiday, read this book, um, Lost in the Middle, Midlife and the Grace of God. I also read uh, read a book called uh, uh, Halfway. And just by the way, when I came back from holiday, one of the staff asked me, what did you read during the holiday? And I mentioned I read this book called Halfway. And they looked at me and they said, Martin, with respect, I think you should read nine-tenths. And they're probably right. Paul Tripp says this. He's so so accurate when it comes to the fall. He says, we live in a world that has been bent and twisted by a force so fundamental, so powerful, that it literally impacts every human thought, every human intention, every situation, and, and every experience of society, every moment of history. 
This force is the inescapable pathology of the created universe. It is sin. One word, three letters, yet a concept without which it is impossible to ever understand your life or mine. End of quote. Unless you understand Genesis 3, unless you understand sin, you will never understand yourself, you will never understand your spouse, you will never understand why your marriage is not perfect. You will never understand why your marriage is like it is. So what sin has done, this is Genesis 1 and 2, what sin has done, what Genesis 3 has done, Genesis 3 has distorted every area of life. Our relationship with our spouse, our relationship with God, and our relationship with the world. That's why marriage can at times be so frustrating. That's why we all have to work at our marriages, those of us who are married. That's why marriages get cracked and dysfunctional and sometimes disintegrate. My eye caught an article just the other day on Larry King of CNN fame. He died last month. He was 87 years old. What I didn't know is that two years ago, he divorced his wife, his seventh wife. So I don't think he understood Genesis 1 and 2, and he certainly practiced Genesis 3. Fourth principle as we close. What is the cure? What is the antidote? What's the answer? What's the answer to struggles in marriage or any relationship? The answer is Christ. So we're going to look at some practical principles the next uh, two sessions that we look at marriage. But the most fundamental principle is the answer to this brokenness is Christ. And there are two pictures of Christ here in Genesis. Have a look at, um, at Genesis Where are we? Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. Verse 15. God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, he's looking forward to Christ. The woman is Mary. The offspring of Mary is Christ. There will be enmity enmity, conflict between Satan and Christ. But in the end, though Satan will bruise the heel of Christ on the cross, Christ will bruise and ultimately destroy Satan at the resurrection and the judgment. But there's even a clearer picture, verse 21, Genesis chapter 3. The answer is Christ. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So remember, nakedness was a picture, a symbol of their sin, of their shame, of their guilt, of their exposure. And what does God do? God goes and he takes an animal and he slaughters the animal and he sacrifices the animal and he takes the skin of the animal and he covers them with this blood-drenched skin. He covers their sin and their shame. What if that animal was a lamb? Behold the Lamb of God. You see, it's a picture of Christ, the antidote, the answer to our brokenness, our personal brokenness, our relational brokenness, our marriage brokenness, is ultimately, fundamentally, Christ. 
Now, we need to flesh that out. Quite often, we who do pastoral counseling with marriages, the clergy and uh, the Care in Crisis Center, quite often we, we recommend that the couple goes to Christianity Explored. So we listen to their story, we unpack what are the issues, the problems. We find out that they probably not Christians. And so we say to them, you need to go to Christianity Explored. Where you will meet Jesus as he walks off the pages of Mark's Gospel. Because before we can do deal with anything else, you need to get right with God. And once you've got right with God, it doesn't solve all the problems. We want to look at some of the other issues, but the foundation is in place. The framework is in place. The ultimate answer to the distortions in relationships and marriage is Christ. Well, let's pray. Let's spend a few moments of quiet as we reflect on God's word. Father, we do pray that your word may convict us and your spirit would convict us. Forgive us, Lord, when we either personally or in our marriages have thought that the purpose is us. Forgive us, Lord, when even as Christians we become so selfish and so self-centered that we do not see that God calls us to serve one another. Forgive us, Father, when we become so consumed with our own lives, be it our marriage, our family, that we have very little concern or energy for others, the world. Lord, will you work in our lives? Will you cause us to be other person-centered? Would you help us to a great self-forgetfulness where I realize my purpose is to serve God and to serve my neighbor? And Father, remind us that the irony is that when our focus is on God and on others, that we find joy and blessedness. So, Lord, will you help us that together as a church family, especially those of us who are married, Lord, that we may go back to the first principles and ultimately back to Christ. So, Lord, be with us this week. Help us to serve you and love you and live for you in all that we do. And we pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, once again, it's been so good to have you here with us this morning in the auditorium. And you can book for next week if you'd like to come. If you're online, if you'd like to join us next week in the auditorium, please, you need to book online. And uh, thank you for joining us online. 
Uh, it's been great to have you. Next week, God willing, we'll come back to uh, Genesis uh, 2 and 3. You may want to read through Genesis 2 again before next Sunday. If you do need some prayer, please just stay in your seats, and one of the staff, one of the counselors will come and pray with you. Please do keep social distancing. God bless you, and have a good week.